start with a quote of the day. This was said by John Ruskin. To banish imperfection is to destroy expression. Hello everyone, my name is Addie Hirshton. I'm a painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you move forward. On the show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn about each other's processes and philosophy. On today's podcast, I am going to be rifting myself, just me, myself, and I, on the topic of truth versus beauty. (laughs) Are they in opposition? That is the question. Um, All right, so announcements. Um, You may have noticed right off the bat that I did not have my regular tune playing at the top of this recording and I decided that it was dated because um, in one part of it it listed my website and I listed an old website and you can still go get to my new website through the old address but um, technically my new website is studioalchemy.art and so I decided you know it's really it's kind of feeling dated to me and old and um, so I'm just going to drop it and uh, I had one friend who protested wildly about that, but I, th- I don't know, just wanted to shake it up. We're going to just uh, make it more simple, make it more clean. Also, um, it was pointed out to me recently that on iTunes, if you want to listen to all of the old podcasts, all the old Alchemy of Art podcasts, that it's only showing you the past 20. And I looked on the app that I listen on, um, the podcast app that I use is called Podcast Addict, and it also only has the past 20 or so episodes on it. Um, if you want to listen to all of the old episodes of the Alchemy of Art podcast, you can do so on Podbean. So that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and that is the actual platform that I use to um, host my podcast and then from Podbean it filters out and goes to iTunes and all the different podcast apps out there so um, if you want to hear the old episodes then you can have access to them you just got to go to Podbean and a little side note when I first started this podcast um, the purpose of it was to to share the folk tales that I had been collecting that were all about artists. So in all the folk tales, the main characters were artists in one way or another. For a book that I wrote that's called The Alchemy of Art Stories for the Classroom. So the first few episodes, I was sharing those folk tales um, in the hope of, you know, sharing them with the world and getting other people to fall in love with them the way I had. And then I quickly realized, well, gosh, I mean, I only have so many stories that are in the book and I want to keep going. And hey, I could use this as an excuse to talk to people who I think are interesting and cool. Um, And then occasionally just reflect on um, what I'm thinking about philosophically myself as is what we're going to do today. So at any rate, um, if you want to hear the old podcast, just go to Podbean. So I'm going to start 
today's chat with an Aesop fable. So Aesop was a, a writer who lived over 2,000 years ago in Greece, and he wrote a lot of stories that I know that you have heard, things like The Tortoise and the Hare. And each of his stories has a, a little moral at the end of them, and they're short and sweet, and... Uh, as poignant today as they were way back then. Once upon a time, there was a jackdaw. A jackdaw is a type of bird that is in Europe. It's kind of like a crow. It has grayish black feathers, very plain. And Zeus, king of the gods, declared that there was going to be a competition. And in the competition, um, he would look to see who the most beautiful bird was, and then that bird would be the king of all the birds. So once they heard this, all the birds said, oh my gosh, I, I better look good if I want to be beautiful, so I need to go and clean up. So they all uh, flew down to the stream and started preening their feathers, cleaning themselves up. And the jackdaw followed, and he was just feeling really down. He's thinking, I'm not going to get picked. My feathers are so plain. And then he started to notice all these other birds with blue feathers and pink feathers and red feathers and yellow feathers. Their feathers were all dropping out. You know, they were losing just a feather or two as they were cleaning themselves up. And then the jackdaw got an idea. He waited until all of the other birds flew away, and then he went and he picked up all of those feathers, and then he stuck them into his own back so that it looked as though he had every color under the rainbow as part of his plumage. Then he flew up to Mount Olympus and was ready to take part in the competition. Well, Zeus saw the jackdaw and thought he was just plain gorgeous and was about to award him the award. (laughs) He was about to award him uh, with the title King of the Birds when the other birds noticed their own feathers on the jackdaw and they all swooped down and pulled them off of him so that he was exposed for his true self and... Zeus was not pleased and gave the award to another one of the birds. And Aesop always has a little moral at the end. And the moral of this story is, it is not only fine feathers that make fine birds. So what is this story about and how in the heck can we relate it to our artwork? Well, The jackdaw didn't believe that his own plumage was good enough. So he creates a mask for himself. He creates a costume. But that costume was a facade. It it wasn't real. It wasn't authentic to him. Or so Zeus thought. And so, because he's not being authentic he loses out. And when we create our artwork, 
we want it to be authentic. I want mine to be authentic. I want to be true to me. Now, there are lots of ways, though, in which we might be trying to to create a piece that is true, but then embellish the beauty of it, <laughs> much of the way that our jackdaw adds beautifully colored feathers to his plumage. So, for example, if I go out and I paint a scene that's, you know, a landscape scene, I oftentimes bump up the colors. I um, super saturate them, <laughs> make them really fun and bright and better, if you will, than real life. Um, is that uh, not being true? Is that not being true? So I'll let that question sit and I'm going to share with you the thoughts of two philosophers on art and truth and beauty. So the first one is John Ruskin. So John Ruskin was British. He lived from um, 1819 to 1900. Um, and he was a big proponent of depicting nature as it actually is. And he was real big on painting from life. Um, now, right now, there's a big plain air movement um, in the United States where I live where people strive to go outside into nature to paint it and work from life. And... The idea being that when you're when it's really in front of you and you're not just working from a photograph or working from memory, then you'll notice um, all of the little imperfections and details that make nature interesting and make it real, make it authentic. And Ruskin was really was big on this idea. And you know, we started off with the quote of the day, to banish imperfection is to destroy expression. And when Ruskin said that, what he's meaning is that if I make my artwork so perfect, if I make it too perfect, it's not going to be real. It's not going to be genuine. And it's not going to be a true expression of the way things really are in nature. Um, another quote he said that I think reflects this idea is he said, art is not a study of positive reality. It is seeking for an ideal truth. Art is not a study for positive reality. It is seeking for an ideal truth. So what is he saying? He's saying like reality is not that happy-go-lucky. It's not that positive. It's not perfect. What he wants is is to show truth with a capital T, okay? Um, this, this reminds me of how quilt makers will oftentimes incorporate a flaw into their design. So say there's just a bunch of, of little blue and white squares, they'll you know switch out a blue and a white, changing it from the way the pattern should be, um, in just one little spot, and 
the reason they do it is because nothing is perfect. And it's just a humble little way of saying, ah, see, my piece isn't perfect. Um, I'm going to just go ahead and and let it have an imperfection on purpose. It's kind of like when you have somebody whose hair is just too perfect, right? And it's like you just have this urge, like I just got to ruffle it up. I just, I just shook the mic when I did that. Just gonna like, like mess up their hair because I, I just can't stand it um, when it is leaning too close to perfection. Um, but uh, at any rate, when you create your artwork, are you striving for it to be perfect, more perfect than it is real? Is it an ideal? And I really must mention that John Ruskin was part of a lawsuit brought against him um, from the artist Whistler. It was a very, very famous case. Um, When did it happen? The 1870s or so. And Ruskin had gone to an art exhibit and he wrote a scathing review of something that Whistler had made, a lovely painting, uh, well, I love it. It's called Nocturne in Black and Gold. Nocturne meaning a nighttime painting. And it's a painting of these fireworks that Whistler had seen. And Ruskin accused Whistler of uh, throwing a can of paint in the public's face, something like that. And then Whistler was very offended that he had written this and decided to sue him for that, you know, freedom of speech and what you can say about people um, being different in Britain than it is in the United States. Um, And it's interesting because I think it's showing how Ruskin thought that Whistler's piece was just too abstracted. It It was too loose. And what's funny is that Ruskin really liked Turner, and I look at Turner's work, and it looks very similar to me to the Nocturne in Gold, in Black and Gold. And yet, there's something about it that was just pushing too far away from reality for Ruskin. He wanted to see artwork reflecting nature in a more realistic way and not pushing toward abstraction, not pushing toward a loosey-goosey impressionism. I'll share one last quote from John Ruskin. He said, remember that the most beautiful things in life are the most useless. Um, and what does he mean by that? He's saying that, uh, you know, a thing of beauty isn't really adding any value. Again, so Ruskin is a big proponent of things need to be gritty. They need to have the imperfections of reality in order for them to be good. And uh, in order for it to be a good piece of artwork, in his opinion. Now, Oscar Wilde is following right behind John Ruskin um, in Britain and with his own art philosophy. And his art philosophy we call the aesthetic movement. And what the aesthetic movement was all about was valuing beauty above all else. 
And in a way, this was a pushback against Ruskin and his ideals. Now, Ruskin liked for the artwork to look good, um, but more importantly, he wanted it to be authentic truth with a capital T. Oscar Wilde and the people who were in the aesthetic movement were more interested in art glorifying the beautiful. Some folks, <clears throat> some um, art history professors would lump Ruskin in with the aesthetic crowd, but one of my professors was a big proponent of actually they really should be separate and their ultimate ideals uh, should be uh, distinguished because Ruskin is pushing for gritty truth, uh, the aesthetics movement folks are pushing for beauty is what we are going for. Um, and I agree with the professor that it's, it, 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 there really is a, a big difference here between the two. To the aesthetes, beauty was by far more important than being moralistic or having a political idea or showing truth with a capital T. They truly reveled in things that were beautiful and the artwork they considered to be the best was things that, that had an ideal beauty to them. There are certain artists that are associated with the aesthetic movement, but probably most of you won't have heard of them. I'm going to give one example from an offshoot of um, the aesthetic movement that's in France, um, and we call that movement the decadent art movement. This is the art movement that came up with the, the phrase, l'art pour l'art, art for art's sake. Okay, and what that meant was we're just we're creating artwork because we um, we don't need to have a big moralistic push to it. It it is what it is, and we're doing it for fun, and it can be ridiculously idealistic and beautiful. So, one of the offshoots from that movement is Art Nouveau and Alphonse Mucha. You've all seen Mucha's work. Um, he has these beautiful women, and then they're surrounded by flowers, and very stylized, very stylized. Um, and I think this is a good example of, of, of an offshoot of the aesthetic movement, because it's, they're too perfect. If you look at Mucha's women, and they're so perfect, it hurts. You know, there's no woman that's that beautiful. And yes, he's got the proportions of, of real women, but, you know, there's no, you know, nobody has freckles, <laughs> nobody has a, a scar, you know, it, it, they are pinup girls, they have been airbrushed to perfection, a, a perf perfect ideal that no, no real person could ever live up to, right, and, um, but, you know, people if the aesthetic art movement would say, well, that's great. That's fine. We want to see beauty. We want to have an ideal. It's okay for us to glorify the ideal. And one, one way to look at that ideal is that of a mask, like the jackdaw. The jackdaw is putting on this costume, this mask, and 
one of the things Oscar Wilde said was, man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. Um, Another quote where he's saying basically the same things, he says, a mask tells us more than the face. What's he saying here? He's saying that the jackdaw and his ideal, his his strive to be more beautiful and put those feathers in his uh, plumage, that's telling us more than the actual jackdaw's appearance. The mask is telling us more than the face. What is it showing us, that ideal beauty? What is the mask showing us? The mask is showing us what it is you perceive as beautiful, what you value, what you want to see, or what you think other people want to see. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, certainly, if I say I have a date, and I, I get dressed up, and maybe I get dressed up a certain way, I'm getting dressed up a certain way in which I think that the person I'm about to go on a date with will like. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> you know, so, so there's so many different things that we can, we can pull out of those costumes and those masks that we put on. And one of the masks, work with me here, one of the masks that we, we project is through our artwork. You know, we're showing people what our ideals are. We're showing them what we perceive to be beautiful, perhaps, or what we value. And does it need to have gritty truth to it? Or can we airbrush it to perfection and maybe that's okay? Now, let's... uh, I'm going to continue just asking that question over and over again as I share with you a few more stories. Um, you know, w- w- one of the things that the mask reminds me of is when you have on social media a friend who is only showing you the good stuff. You know, you'll see happy couple pictures. You'll see, you know, we just had Thanksgiving, like a beautiful pie that has, you know, this this lovely um, homemade crust that they made in a decorative pattern. And you just kind of want to gag when you see these like perfect, perfect pictures that your friends share, right? We all have that moment. It's just like, oh God, they, they just seem so perfect. But of course... I know, because I've been around the block enough, that none of my friends have perfect lives. They're all suffering in their own way. They all have aches and pains. And But oftentimes, we want to just show the good stuff. We want to just put on the happy face um, and make things appear as idealistically beautiful as we possibly can. Now, this might just be showing, well, this is what I'm celebrating. You know, I want to put forth the the best moments of my life because this is what I want people to remember me for. Hmm? <laughs> um, there's a Paul Simon song that 
is about this phenomenon, and it's called Kodachrome. It's one of my favorite songs. Um, but in it, he says, Kodachrome, they give us those nice, bright colors. They give us the greens of summers. Makes you think all the world's a sunny day. I've got a Nikon camera. I love to take a photograph, so mama, don't take my Kodachrome away. What is Paul Simon saying with his song Kodachrome? He's saying... We want to take a photo of the most beautiful, super saturated, colorful, rich, blessed summer days that we have. And that's what we want to preserve. I love to take a photograph. Give me those nice bright colors. Let me think that all the world's a sunny day. It's not sunny everywhere. <laughs> it's certainly not sunny where I am right now here today. It's very crappy and um, it, it's blizzarding outside. It's very cold and wet and gray. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't appreciate the sunny day if it weren't for the gray days. Um, right? So, uh, another funny story I have for you. Okay. Back when I was in um, graduate school, I was getting a Master of Library Science, and I was studying folklore, specifically. And you can't do a study of folklore without reading the work of Charles Perrault and the work of the Brothers Grimm. Charles Perrault was a French author who, in 1697, wrote a book called Tales and Stories of the Past with Morals. And in that book, we have Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, Sleeping Beauty, a lot of those classic fairy tales that you have all heard. Okay. Um, and then... You know, over a hundred years later, in 1812, the Grimm brothers in Germany wrote children's and household tales, and it is very similar in that it's it's writings of folk tales from their region. And one of the things that's really fascinating if you get into folk tales is how they cross all borders. So, for example, the story Cinderella is found in almost every culture in the world, with slight variations. Um, but there are there are core key elements that are universal. One is it's a downtrodden young woman who is not appreciated by her family or the people she lives with in some way. And then um, there's a handsome prince that she meets, and then there's something with a shoe. The shoe is essential to the Cinderella story, and it's found in Japan and China and uh, Africa and all over the world. But folklorists um, like looking at the differences between those tales and making note, you know, maybe this tells something about German culture, if in their culture Cinderella does this, and blah, 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 blah. Um, 
And I was reading up on this, reading up on this, and then I read this dissertation that had been written back in the 70s by some guy who was speculating about the Brothers Grimm and about Charles Perrault. And he was saying that he was not sure whether the Grimm brothers had read the Perrault fairy tales. So did reiterate and be clear, the Peralt fairy tales were written over 100 years before the Grimm brothers uh, documented their tales, and that was written down in France, the brothers Grimm were German, and this person had written their dissertation questioning, did the Grimm brothers read Peralt or not? He wasn't sure. And he, you know, looked for similarities and looked for clues and was not able to tell for certain. I read all these things and then I decided I'm going to go and I'm going to look at the originals because I was at IU. I was at um, Indiana University in Bloomington and in the special archival library they have there, they have an original Peralt and they have an original Grimbrother book. And I said to myself, of doing all this research, I've read them, reread them, and, and I, if I can put my hands on the originals, I just think it'll be a neat experience. So I went in to the library. They gave me the special little white gloves. They went to the back room. They got the two books, and they brought them out. Now, the one, one thing I noticed right away was that the Peralt book looked a lot newer, even though it was published in uh, 1697. It was The pages were crisp and um, they were, uh, the pages were thick, and I could read it really, really easily because of the font that they had used. And the Grimm Brother one was, the pages were brittle. I was really afraid that it might fall apart as I'm, I'm leafing through it. And it was done in that kind of gothic uh, German script that um, is very uh, hard to read under any circumstances, let alone with a, an old book. So um, I decided, okay, I've got these two in front of me. I'll read Little Red Riding Hood. I'll read it in French, and then I'll read it in German. So I read it in French, um, and then I turned to the German one, read it in German. My German's not great, but I, you know, stumbled through it, and just, you know, I just had the experience. I'm just savoring this experience of being with this primary document, <laughs> okay? And, and then I saw that at the end of the Little Red Riding Hood, it, it had a little footnote. And, and then I flipped to the back of the book in the Grimm Brothers version. And in the footnote about the Little Red Riding Hood, it said something about Peralt. It referenced Peralt. And I saw this and it was like this lovely aha moment. I, I kind of wanted to like jump out of my chair and, you know, say victory. Yes, I've solved the mystery. Did the Grimm brothers read Peralt? Yes, they did because they reference Peralt in the book. The person who wrote their dissertation in the 70s probably didn't know this because he hadn't been looking at the primary document. He was probably just reading you know, other people's translations into English, and so didn't catch this detail that I did. And that was all very exciting. And I bring up this story for, for two reasons. One is that after that, I've, I've 
had a little debate with myself. Well, how important is it that the truth is that the Grimm brothers read Peralt? How do I need to tell everybody? Do I need to write to the guy who wrote the dissertation and, and set him straight? How important is that truth? Because truth is just going to sit there. It is what it is. Fact is, Grimm Brothers read Peralt. Do I need to prove the truth to anybody? Do I need to um, announce it to the world? You know, when is it necessary to share a truth or not? Or just let it sit and just let it, yeah, it's fine. I did decide to not write or try to seek out the person who wrote the dissertation and just let it go. And the other reason I bring up this particular story with the Grimm brothers and Peralt is because both of those, and it, Grimm brothers in particular, their depictions of the fairy tales are, are quite gruesome. They're, they're very, very violent. They have an ugly side to them. And one of my English teachers explained that when you have a bit of folklore, really any story, it's got to have a hard side. It's got to have an ugly side. It's got to have something scary. It's got to have conflict so that we can get to the resolution at the end of the tale. Um, and there are lots of revisions that have been made in you know the past few decades of folk tales where it's less scary where it's perhaps written from a more feminist perspective i do think that those fairy tales are universally appealing and you can find cinderella tale in all these different cultures around the world because first you've got that conflict you've got that ugly side of reality. You've got the downtrodden person who's not appreciated. Ugly, right? And we all experience that type of ugliness in in one way or another. And then we resolve it. We tie it up with a bow. We let there be justice at the end of the tale. And I argue that it's not the conflict that makes the fairy tales so appealing. It's the resolution. It's the justice. It's uh, prettying it up at the end in a way that's perhaps over the top um, better than we would ever experience in real life. You know, do any of us really marry a prince in real life like Cinderella does? No. But we love the idea of an ro- overly romantic resolution. And perhaps that is like making a painting that has, uh, y- you know, over-the-top beautiful elements to it. Perhaps that is like having the jackdaw add the feathers in and make himself more spruced up. Perhaps that's a lot like taking a photo with those Kodachrome colors <laughs> and sharing them, sharing just those beautiful moments. Perhaps that's a lot like having a painting where we 
we push the ideals. We push um, our view of what is beautiful. We bump up those colors. We, we are creating the world we want to see, right? So I do think, you know, if I, have to, if I have to take a stance of this, you know, Ruskin versus Wild debate on, um, you know, what, what is the, the main strive of art? Is it to reflect truth with a capital T or is it to be beautiful? And I would actually say that th- that beauty is showing us a truth about ourselves. It's showing us our ideals. It's showing us what we want to see. Um, and that's not any less valid than uh, something that is is just reflecting a hard truth. Um, we can still recognize the hard truth, share those hard truth stories when we need to, but also allow for those ideals to flourish and shine forth. I think that's in our human nature. (laughs) So, if I were Zeus, (laughs) let's really dream now. If I were Zeus and the jackdaw was in front of me and I get to declare the winner of all the birds... I would declare the jackdaw the winner. I would not say he's inauthentic because he's picked up other plumage and decorated himself more. In fact, I might say, oh, he put in extra effort. He used his imagination. He um, embellished himself in a way that... perhaps was actually authentic to him and his ideals. Um, You know, you, you of course could take that story and, and spin it so that the moral is more about you not being fake. You know, none of us want to be fake. But in those embellishments, I think that there is a truth. I don't think that they are truly separate from each other. And now, my dear friends, I am going to uh, turn off the recording, and then, uh, ironically, I will go back and I will edit this, <laughs> as I always do. You know, I edit out the dog barks, and, you know, if I say, um, or I have a super long pause, and that editing is... It's kind of essential, isn't it? I, I watched a movie recently where it, it, it was just a terrible grade B movie. Um, it was a zombie movie. I won't say which one. And it really could have used more editing. It could have used more embellishment. It, we're always tweaking things to make them better and more idealistic. I think the fact is this, we just have to recognize it'll never be truly perfect. <laughs> and on that note, I will say goodbye. This concludes our Alchemy of Art podcast for today. May these stories of art and the creative process inspire you. 
may you find your voice.